in the book of Matthew today, Matthew's gospel, please, chapter 24, probably the greatest single chapter of prophecy in the entire Bible, but today we're not looking at it from a prophetic standpoint, except in a very narrow sense. We're going to look at one verse that our Lord gave to us that many of you know by heart, but would you stand with me as we read that one verse together today in honor of the Lord himself. Matthew chapter number 24 and verse 35. And the Lord said, and let's all read it together aloud, good and strong together. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. One more time. Let's read it. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And thank you, Heavenly Father, for these words of the Lord Jesus. We believe them, and as I preach today upon them, as I've already asked, but I ask again, because the subject is of paramount importance, teach us, Lord, to love your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And you may be seated. You find the identical words in the book of Mark, chapter 13 and verse 31. Heaven and earth shall pass away, Jesus said, but my words shall not pass away. Heaven and earth encompasses the entire physical universe. This universe is passing away, but God's word will not pass away. This is the fourth message I've brought to you on this subject on a shelf by itself, the Bible. On the shelf by itself, meaning the Bible is unlike any other book. It's elevated above all other books because it's God's book. And I'd like to, uh, last week I was out of town preaching in Savannah, and uh, they had this 60th anniversary down there of a church that was very instrumental in helping us when we began, Bible Baptist Church, large church in Savannah. So I went back and preached to them on the 60th anniversary, and I remember that I preached to them on their 40th anniversary as well 20 years ago. And last week, I booked them for their 80th anniversary. (laughs) I plan to go back again and preach on that one, but uh, seriously, The week before that, we had John Roseman here. And so I've broken my series twice, two weeks in a row. And it's like reviving a dead body sometimes to get a series started again after you've broken it. So permit me to do a little review. Sermon number one was on the great word of uh, revelation. Revelation. And what does revelation mean? Revelation means that God has chosen to give us known truth. God has chosen to reveal to us or to make known to us things we would not know in any other way if he had not revealed them to us. And so he tells us things in the Bible about himself. There's no other way to know them them from the Bible. We have two kinds of revelation that we think about. We think of general revelation, which is nature. You can look at the mountains. You can look at the ocean. 
You can look at your own body and see the handiwork of God that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, as the psalm says. General revelation. But those things don't tell me that God loves me. They don't tell me that Christ died for my sins. They don't reveal the gospel. They just tell me that God is very wise and that God is very powerful. But there's special revelation. Special revelation is Jesus Christ who came as a man and revealed God to the world. And then there is the written revelation of God that we call the Scriptures, the Holy Bible. That was the first message. The second message was on inspiration. We move from revelation, God revealing himself to man, to inspiration. And inspiration, the word literally means in the Greek language, God breathed. God breathed. So just as we breathe and the air coming across our vocal cords makes a sound, God breathed his word to those original authors of the Scripture. And how did he do that? In Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 21, it says that holy men of old spake as they were moved, borne along, controlled, and directed by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible is not a normal, natural book. The Bible is a supernatural book. If you don't accept that at some point, Really, I can't do much to help you with it. God's Holy Spirit has superintended and has overseen every single part of the preservation and inspiration and revelation of the Holy Scriptures. Now, the third message, I've talked to you about the evidences why I believe the Bible's the Word of God. And I gave you many. Fulfilled prophecy is an evidence that the Bible is supernaturally written. Um, scientific information was revealed to us in the Scriptures that the world didn't know anything about. The scientists had to catch up with the Bible. For example, the Bible says that the world was circular when science taught that it was flat. The Bible says the life of the flesh is in the blood when they bled people to get rid of their diseases. The Bible teaches so many scientific things. It's not a book on science, but it has spoken truthfully and trustworthily about science before so-called science even knew about those facts. Then another of its uh, evidences is the historical accuracy of the Bible. There are things recorded in the Bible that we look back upon now and we see, well, that's true. Archaeology is an evidence of the truthfulness of the Bible. And the spade of the archaeologist has been the best friend of the Bible. Over and over, they've unearthed evidence that always coincided. The archaeologists have never yet, after 25,000 digs that have uh, been related to Bible history, after 25,000 archaeological digs, and this, was, this statistic is from a few years ago. We've never found one fact that would contradict the historical accuracy of the Bible. The unity of the Bible says that the Bible is inspired of God. And then there's the testimony of Jesus. Jesus said the Bible is accurate, that is true, that is trustworthy. If the Bible is not, then Jesus was a liar. And nobody wants to be in the position, I don't think, 
Certainly, if you're a Christian, you don't want to be calling Jesus a liar, but Jesus said the Old Testament was accurate. And then, of course, there's that impact upon people's lives. Changing me and changing you, we just read or we just sung a few moments ago. The power of the Bible, unlike any other book, to literally transform the lives of people. Now, new territory, that's the previous messages. Today, we talk about the preservation of the Scripture, the preservation. And this is just as important as the revelation, God choosing to reveal Himself, God breathing out the Scriptures, the evidences we have that the Scriptures are true. Now today, here's the issue. Has God preserved His Word? So I hold up this book very often here, and I say to you, this is the Word of God. But millions of people around the world, many of whom even call themselves Christians, say, well, that's not the Word of God that contains the Word of God. Is this the Word of God? Or does it just contain the Word of God, that it's a mixture of fables and mythology, and some truth is sprinkled in here as well? Can you hold up your Bible today and say, this is the Word of God Can you say this book is fully accurate, that it is so accurate that I can trust my soul to it, my ever-dying, my never-dying, ever-living, eternal soul, that will be somewhere when the universe is burned into a cinder, my soul will be alive. Can I trust that eternal soul to the truth that I find in this book? Or did God inspire that and breathe that word out? And did God reveal himself? And then down through the years, it's been corrupted. And today we have only a facsimile of the word of God. Or do we have a true representation of the word of God? Those are important issues for us. Now, let me make something really clear. And I hope you'll never forget it. God only inspired his word one time. God only inspired it when he spoke to the original authors of the text. 2 Timothy 1.21, holy men of God spake as they were moved to the Holy Spirit. God didn't, didn't promise to inspire the word, uh, his word every time somebody uh, wrote out a text of it somewhere. But God promised to preserve his word. God inspired his word once, but he has been preserving it now for over 20 centuries. And my goal in this message is very simple. I want you to have great confidence in the Word of God. I want you to believe it so deeply that you rest your life, your soul, your eternity upon it, and you never question it. Number one, if you're taking notes with me, God promised us that He would preserve His Word. If God's Word is not preserved, if this is not the Word of God, then He's broken a promise to me. He promised me to preserve His Word. He said that His Word would endure forever. So when you hear somebody say, oh, I believe that's, uh, the Bible's corrupted, they're challenging the integrity of God Himself. God promised that He would preserve His Word. Where did He promise it? Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8, the grass withereth. We see that happen in the summer when the drought comes. The flower fadeth, 
but the Word of our God will stand how long? Forever. The Word of our God will stand forever. Yes, God has preserved His Word. Matthew 5 and 18, the Lord Jesus Christ is the speaker. And what does He say? Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law until all be fulfilled. Luke 16 and 17 says the same thing. Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will not pass from the law till all be fulfilled. What's a jot and a tittle? The smallest punctuation marks that were in the Greek language. If you were to go to Bible college and take a semester of Greek, they, one of the things the students always say has been passed down from one generation of students to the others, watch your tittles. Watch your tittles. And what do they mean when they, when, mean when they say watch your tittles? It's like saying watch your commas. Watch your periods. Watch your semicolons. Because in the Greek language, those tittles and those jots are very, very important to the meaning of words. Sometimes You have the same word, but you put a jot or a tittle in there, and it changes the meaning of it. Watch your tittles. And Jesus said the smallest punctuation mark would not even pass away. God has promised to preserve his word. There's one other way he promised to preserve it. We talk a lot here about the Great Commission. And the Lord said at the end of the Great Commission, he said, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize your converts, and I want you to teach them and train them. And then listen to what he said very carefully. He said, teach them to observe all things until the end of the world. Now, why do I use that verse there? Because Jesus is making an assumption that there will always be a true Word of God that we can teach our converts. He's not saying the Word of God was corrupted and convoluted and and the integrity of it has been lost. No, you teach them. Teach them what? All the things that I've taught you. And the inference and the assumption is that those things will be available for us. And until the end of the world, we will have a reliable and accurate copy of God's Word that we can use to teach our converts. How did God preserve His I mean, God has promised to preserve His Word. Point two. How did he preserve the Old Testament? I'm going to show you how he did it a little differently in both Testaments. How did God preserve his word? I open my Bible up here to the very first chapter, and I see the book of Genesis. If your Bible has some notes there in the center column, it probably says something like this over the first chapter of Genesis. It probably says 1400 to 1500 B.C. We don't know the exact date when a man named Moses, specially called of God and God's greatest Old Testament prophet, we don't know the exact date, but somewhere back there, about 14 or 1500 before Christ, the Holy Spirit moved upon Moses and he wrote down the message that God had breathed to him. 14, 1500 years before Jesus. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, which is a lot of material. If you start reading through your Bible, you know it takes you a long time to read through those first five books. The Jews call that the Torah, the Torah, meaning the law, the first five books of your Bible. 
We call that sometimes the Pentateuch. Penta, Greek for five. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Jesus, I don't have time to cross-reference it, but Jesus said Moses wrote those five books. Not JDPQ, the Wellhouse and theory that they teach in liberal seminaries. Jesus said Moses wrote those first five books of the Bible. Again, to question that is to question the very integrity of the Lord himself. Now, how did the Lord, though, preserve it? After Moses, you picture Moses sitting down somewhere, and he has a scroll, and he's writing out the words of Genesis. He wasn't there in Genesis 1, obviously. But the Holy Spirit revealed to him what happened in Genesis chapter 1. And he wrote it. He wrote an accurate and trustworthy copy of it. How was it preserved? If you read the book of Deuteronomy, you find out that the priests had the responsibility that came along about that time. God established the priesthood under his brother, um, under, under Moses' brother Aaron, the Levitical priesthood. They had the responsibility for caring for the law of God and being the stewards of it. Originally, they wrote it on papyri. Papyri is a paper-like substance. It's made from the reeds that grew alongside the riverbanks in the ancient world. They grind it up, and they would put it through a process, and they'd have a pretty nice sheet of paper. And they would write with a quill pen, and they wrote with ink. And they took soot and water and a gum base, and they wrote the words, and they were permanent words with that process they used. The people that wrote the Bible made the copies of it. Moses only made one copy of it. He wrote one day, or in a period of time, 1,500 years before Christ, he wrote out the book of Genesis. And I don't know how he wrote it. I don't know what his handwriting looked like. The original's not here. It doesn't exist anymore. I'll tell you why in a moment. But they had scribes, and they copied his copy, And then other scribes copied that copy, and they copied other copies, and they copied copies, copies, copies. They didn't have electronic Xeroxes in those days. They had to hand copy every copy. Now, people today read their own roadmaps onto those pictures. But, you know, somebody gives me an address, and I scribble it down. Somebody gives me a phone number, and I write it down. Sometimes I transpose one of the numbers and call the number, and it's the wrong number. You ladies hear about a recipe, and you write it down, and it says one cup of this, and you put two cups, and you know the problem. We don't copy things real accurately by hand. We don't need to. We depend on printing presses, and we depend on um, we copy machines. All kinds of technology now can copy it. But in that day, they had to copy it accurately. Don't write off the accuracy of those scribes. Ignorant people do that. Those scribes were a professional class of scholars who were trained meticulously in how to copy and to copy accurately. Did they make mistakes? Yes, they made some mistakes. You can prove that. That's incontrovertible. But they didn't make very many mistakes, I'll tell you that, for the volume of work that they did. Do you know what they would do? When they got through with a document, we'll say Moses' book of Genesis, do you know what they would do? They would go back before it would ever be put out for the public. They would copy, they would count every letter. 
So they would look for the Aleph's, the A's. They would go through the whole book of Genesis and count the A's. Then they would go through and count every B in the original. Then they would go to the copy that they had just made, and they would count all the Aleph's and all the Beth's, the B's. And if they didn't match, they would go back through until they found it, and they would make a notation on it, and they would write, and they would correct it right there in the spaces around it. They're, they were so dedicated to doing this accurately that when they came to the word God, Jehovah, they had a special pen. And so they would lay down the pen that they'd been writing the other words with. They would pick up the dedicated pen that only ever wrote the, word, the, the name God, and they would write Yahweh. And then they would lay that pen down and pick up the regular pen and go back to their work. This wasn't done on a, this wasn't done on a whim. These people understood they were dealing with the Word of God. And so they preserved the Word of God. And then you know what they did in those days? They read the Word of God constantly publicly. Volumes of it. Look in the book of Nehemiah one day. They read the Bible for six hours. Six hours in one day. People standing before a pulpit made of wood with Ezra the scribe up there reading I imagine the babies were crying. I imagine people wanting to go to the bathroom. I imagine all kinds of things were going on. They read the Word of God for six hours. And they read it so much that the people knew it. We call that their oral tradition, but we don't depend on that exclusively. They read and read and read the Word of the Lord over and over in public services. Now, we don't do that because... They only have one copy of the Word of God that they kept at the temple or in a place of worship, a synagogue or whatever. But you and I, everybody here has a copy of the Word of God. Can you imagine how valuable just one of those copies was in the day in which we're talking about? And you would go up to the temple and there was always a copy of the Word of God on public display in the temple there in Jerusalem. Now, over the next 900 years, after 14 to 1500, we have, we have the Word of God being given again by holy men of old who spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And these holy men wrote the Word of God down, and they were prophets. Samuel wrote large parts of the Word of God. We had two kings, David and Solomon, who wrote the Word of God. And down through the years, the Word of God was completed with the book of Malachi, the last book in your Old Testament, which was written about 430 years before the Lord Jesus Christ came to the earth. Now, after Jesus came, listen, you, you probably don't, you're not as familiar with this. There was a, a group of people who arose in those days after the Lord Jesus and after the destruction of the temple and the priesthood and all everything in Jerusalem. They were called the Masoretes. M-A-S-O-R-E-T-E-S. The word means tradition keepers. These people would have died to preserve the traditions of the Jewish people and especially the Jewish scripture. And they continued to copy and preserve the Old Testament text. Now, your Bible right here today, your English Bible, uses as the basis of the Old Testament the Masoretic text, the text that came out of somewhere between 500 and 900 A.D., and your Old Testament is a Masoretic text-based translation. 
No matter what translation you're using, it's Masoretic text-based. What's interesting about that is people used to say, oh, the Old Testament's not reliable. In 1947, an Arab boy is out in a little place called Qumran, where I've been able to go. It's a desert place, rocks, dirt, no trees, barren, forsaken. And this little Arab boy is chasing a little sheep or a lamb that's gotten loose from his flock into a cave. And he goes into the cave in Qumran, and what does he find? A big leather, he he finds a big earthenware pot about this tall. And in the pot, he finds a leather document. And he begins to look around in that cave, and he finds more documents. He finds several leather, vellum, parchment documents. He can tell they're old. He takes them into somebody, and they end up saying, you know what? We need to go back there and look more. The archaeologists ended up at that site in 1947. They continued to dig there until 1956 for nine years. When they were through, we had the most thrilling confirmation of the truth of God's Word that's ever been discovered in our lifetimes. You have heard of it. It's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And why are the Dead Sea Scrolls important? My wife and I stood at a glass case in um, Jerusalem, and we looked at a scroll, and it was as long, it was as long as, oh, 12, 14 feet long, encased in this heavy plexiglass uh, uh, case to preserve it. Recently, it was in Charlotte. They had it up there at the Discovery Place, and you can get the idea there. It would be as, almost as long as the front part of our altar right here, the scroll. And it was contained the entire book of Isaiah, all of the book of Habakkuk, but a few pieces, all of Genesis, and all of a whole bunch more, plus a bunch of little fragments of books. The only book that was missing is the book of Esther in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They had been there since 250 to 350 before Christ. They've been there now from 1947 back 2,100 years or so. But what is important, what is important about the Dead Sea Scrolls is when we took our Bible and we compared our Old Testament to the original Dead Sea Scrolls, you know what we found out? There's not one single significant error in all of our Old Testament, God preserved His Word, and the Dead Sea Scrolls are absolute proof. It's all there. Heaven and earth may pass away. My words will never pass away. And you can trust your Old Testament, and the Dead Sea Scrolls confirmed their trustworthiness. Now, quickly, the book of Luke, chapter 24. And I want to come back again because if all you're going to take is the naturalistic arguments of scholars, you're probably not going to believe the Bible. There is a supernatural element to the Bible that we as Christians believe. And we go to the book of Luke, chapter number 24, where Jesus is talking to the disciples, two of them, the evening after his resurrection. And what did he say in verse 44? He said to them, these are the words, the ancient words now for us, which I've spoken to you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, the first five books, and in all the prophets, 
and in the Psalms by David and Moses and Asaph, all things concerning me. And Jesus broke the Old Testament down into three parts, the law, the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he said, everything in them I am fulfilling or will fulfill. The Old Testament is trustworthy and accurate. Believe it, is what Jesus was saying. That's how God preserved the Old Testament, and we know he did because we now have the scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls that confirm the accuracy of the Old Testament. Now, what do you do in the New Testament? In the New Testament, it's a little different. Let's imagine today we're, we're in an ancient church. We sung ancient words. We're in an ancient church, and I put my little display up here today. It's old chest, and let's pretend like we're maybe in the church at Ephesus or Pick out one, Laodicea or Rome or any of those ancient churches, early Christian churches. Here's their Bible. Everybody didn't come in with a book that had a leather cover on it that was nicely arranged from a printer. Their Bible looked like something like this. They kept it down at the church where the people gathered. Sometimes they didn't even have a building, and so sometimes they'd hand one scroll to you, and they'd hand another scroll to you, and another scroll to somebody else. And, and the Christians would take it home to, to protect it in case persecution came. All the scrolls wouldn't be in one place. Each of these scrolls represent one book of the Bible. And so you have big scrolls. This is Genesis. Here's Jude, little tiny book of the Bible. You didn't get that. Okay. There's the scrolls, all different sizes and lengths of scrolls. And they're here in the chest, and they probably kept it down at the church. And so we unroll one of these scrolls. They're all written in the New Testament in Greek. I have a little bit of Aramaic, and so I have a little Hebrew-looking or Greek-looking scroll there, and they would roll it out. The whole book of the Bible, whatever book this is, this is the book of John, we'll say. And here it is in the scroll. And they would read it in the services. Turn to the book of Colossians, chapter number 4, if you will, in your Bible with me. And I'm down here and away from my notes and wheeling it, but that's okay for a moment. Let's look in the book of Colossians, chapter number 4. I want to show you an interesting thing that we just tend to... uh, pass over sometimes. Colossians chapter number 4, and let's look in verse 16. Colossians 4 and 16. And when this epistle, letter, is read among you, calls that it be read also in the church at Laodicea, and that you also likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Now, you don't have a book in your Bible called Laodicea. Because it didn't make it when the cut came for the books in the Bible. But they were constantly circulating these copies. of, And so here's Paul's letter, we'll say, to the, to the Colossians. And here's what happened. They didn't have printing presses and copying machines. And so what did they do? They had people who were also scribe scholars, and they copied this document. And so all of these are copies There are no originals. Paul's letter to the Colossians originally got worn out, or it got destroyed in a persecution. 
Now, I know why we don't have any copies of the original Scriptures today. If we did, it would be in a glass case somewhere, and people would be worshiping it. And God said, I've got something just as good, if not better, in my way. And so people began to copy the Word of God, and they copied the scrolls. And our church would make its copy, and then another church would come, and they would copy our copy. And another church would go to them and copy their copy. Did some mistakes in those copies get in? Yes, they did, because God didn't promise that the inspiration would extend to the copy. He originally inspired His Word. And we know from comparing these copies that there were some errors that crept in, but God had a plan for that as well. So here's the copy, and this was copied from the original, we'll say. And then somebody else came along and made another copy, and somebody came along and made another copy, and we have all these copies. Do you know how many copies of the New Testament documents we have? In the libraries around the world, we have 5,000 255 manuscript copies or fragments in Greek. 5,255 of these handmade copies around the world in Greek. But then the people that spoke Greek, what about the other people? So the folks that spoke Latin came and said, we need somebody who's bilingual who can copy your copy and put it into Latin. And they made translations of these copies. Do you know how many Latin copies we have? Ancient Latin copies that go back to the second and third century? We have over 8,000 of them. We have over 13,000 copies in just two languages of the ancient versions of the Scriptures. Now, those were called copies. And then they were translated, and we call that ancient versions. They were in Latin and Coptic and Syriac and Aramaic and all those ancient languages that nobody even speaks anymore for the most part. But now listen to me. you got to listen to this part. This is the most important part of my message. So how do we know if we have an accurate copy of God's Word? Because I've already told you there were some mistakes here, these copyist, copyist errors. They're not big mistakes. They're not... They're not They don't affect the virgin birth or the deity of Christ. They're mistakes like punctuation mistakes, mistakes like a misspelling or reverse of a word order that a copyist made. None of those copyist errors would ever affect the truthfulness of any doctrine that we have. Here's what they would do, though. They would take this scroll and describe the the man uh, uh, transcribing it would... He would read what it says here. Let's say he took John 3.16, and he, wrote, he, he looked in this copy, and so he copied it. And then he looked in this copy of the Scripture. We don't have any originals, but we got accurate copies. And so he took that one. That one said the same thing as this one. He took this one. He read it. Here's another copy, and it said the same thing as the other two did. And he keeps on going through them. But one day he picks up another one, and uh-oh, he reads, and this one has a slight variation. But now he's read 25 that have all said the same thing, and here's one that has just a slight variation. What, do you, what would you get if 25 people told you the very same thing, and one person came and told you a slight variation of that? 
You'd say, I think the 25 got it right, wouldn't you? And the one guy was not paying attention that day or whatever. And so that's only one of many protections that God's Word has had as it's come down through the centuries to give us a reliable copy. Now, you have those three types of manuscripts in this old chest. You have the copies of the originals, no originals. You have the the translations of those copies into the ancient languages, ancient versions. You have one other kind, one other thing here. You have the writings of the, uh, uh, the church fathers, people like Clement of Alexander, people like uh, Irenaeus, people like Polycarp, who was the disciple of the Apostle John. And these men wrote commentaries on the Scripture. And you say, well, but that wasn't included in our Bible. No, but it was a confirmation of the accuracy because these, do you know that the writings of the church fathers contain virtually every verse that's included in the New Testament? So it's another way to confirm the accuracy. These men were quoting Scripture, and it was the same Scriptures that were in the copies and that were in the ancient versions. Most of those were written on parchment. Few of them were written on papyri. And so those texts then, we call them texts, were constructed out of the majority reading of those thousands of copies of Scripture that we have. And there's such amazing agreement between all those copies that the enemies of the Bible pick on the few, few errors that are in those copies. But as a Bible believer, I go back to what Jesus said. Heaven and earth will pass away. And God found a way to overcome those inaccuracies in those copies to give us a reliable majority text. Listen to the words of an expert named Richard Bentley. Bentley was a great textual scholar. In the year 1713, Bentley wrote these words. Pick up the worst copy in existence of the Scriptures. Include all the variant readings. Put them in the hands of a knave or a fool, and he will not extinguish the light of any one chapter nor disguise Christianity, but that every feature of it will still be the same. In other words, Richard Bentley said, as I'm saying to you, all the differences in the world in those copies are slight, and they do not affect any essential point of our doctrine, our view of God. Do I, can I hold up my Bible and say this is the Word of God? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, those texts that were made from these copies up here, you have the originals, which don't exist. You have the copies of the originals. You have the texts that were made from the majority consensus of all those. And then you have the translations. And the very first translation of the Bible into Greek and printed then was called the Textus Receptus. Listen to me. Every Bible that was printed until 1880, every version of the Bible, Wycliffe used the Textus Receptus. Tyndale, the second translator of the Bible, both of whom died for their faith, used the Textus Receptus. Coverdale, the Geneva Version, the Matthews Bible, and the King King James Version of the Bible. 
every one of those, until 1880, every Bible was translated from the Textus Receptus. So the sequence is this. You have the autographs, the original documents where Paul and John and others wrote with their hand. You have the copies, 5,255 known copies in museums and libraries around the world in Greek alone, 8,000 more Latin copies and other copies in other languages. You have the ancient versions, like the Vulgate, language, the Syriac versions, translations from the Greek. Then you have the writings of the church fathers, which confirm that the above were all accurate. And then you have the text that was translated into Greek, from which our translations today come. And you can trace that chain all the way back up to the antiquity. Now, but here's the thing I close with. Listen to me. Look up this way. Never, ever forget that you don't explain the Bible in a naturalistic, scholarly, literary, linguistic way anyhow. The truth of the Bible does not reside on man. The Bible is supernatural. Holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They wrote down a truthful account of the revelation that God wanted you and me to know. And Jesus said, heaven and earth, all the systems of man can pass away, but my words will never pass away. So as a Christian, I study this. I confirm that. I either choose to believe my Bible or not believe my Bible. I've chosen that I'm going to rest my soul upon the Scripture. It is the foundation of this church. We're not going to ever have a vote here on whether the Bible is inerrant and whether we believe it or not. We already have made that choice, and we're going to try to live it out from now on. Amen? As Christians, we don't deal with the Bible like we deal with other books. We believe God's promise to preserve His Word. We believe the Holy Spirit guided the early Christians. I'll give you only one verse that confirms that. Turn quickly with me. And I'm running a little long, but boy, i got to get this all in. This is a lot to cover. John chapter 14 in your Bible. Let me show you a word of Jesus that we apply even to this. Jesus is speaking to the apostles. Do you know that the first books of the Bible weren't written until 15 years or more after Jesus left the earth? Well, how did they remember? Well, they didn't. They didn't have to. John chapter 14, verse number 26, Jesus had already promised them the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things. And look what he promised. And he will bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. John, Peter, Jude, Matthew, don't you worry about having kept accurate notes. You're going to sit down one day and write, and the Holy Spirit is going to guide you and bring everything to your remembrance that I've taught you. He said the same thing in chapter 16 and verse 13 again. Now, look up here. I know this has been a little teachy. This is a Seminary 101 at FBT today. But you know what? I want you to have confidence in your Bible. 
And I want you to love your Bible enough that you would die for it. I want you to evaluate this church by this, not what some other church says or does. I want you to evaluate Bill Monroe by this because it's the only real evaluation. I want you to evaluate your life by this because that's the only true evaluation. If you evaluate it by the people around you, the Scripture says you'll be foolish. When we compare ourselves with ourselves, we become foolish. How important is what I've preached to you? The basis of your salvation depends upon what I've said being true. How important is my message this morning? Your sanctification, your ability to live a godly life depends upon this. Your usefulness as a Christian Study to show yourselves approved to God, a workman that's not ashamed because he knows the Word of God. Your assurance of salvation depends upon this, not how you're living or what somebody teaches. Your assurance comes from the Word of God. Everything about the Christian life begins right here. Everything about the church begins right here. And the theme of this book, through and through, as I've already told you, is the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel. And with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, my question to you today is, have you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel? Do you believe His word? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God.